Welcome to Prospecting Purpose, where we explore mining's role in shaping a sustainable, socially just, and brighter future. I'm Liz Friel, your host for the series, with a rotating guest on every episode. Have you wondered what is mining's role in the circular economy? How does an industry based on linear raw material extraction fit within the emerging global vision of circularity? Is it closed loop systems at asset level? New uses for waste rock or tailings? E-waste recycling? Metal as a service? Vertical integration? Well, that's exactly what we're going to focus on today. My co-host for this episode is Alan Young, a global circular economy expert with a contagious passion for accelerating our transformation to a zero-waste, low-carbon future. Alan's impressive track record features numerous notable leadership positions, including the International Institute for Sustainable Development, the Circular Economy Leadership Coalition, the Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance, and the Materials Efficiency Research Group. Welcome, Alan. Welcome. Thanks very much. Super to have you on the show. It's a great pleasure to be here. So first, before we start, I'd love to ask you, what first drew you to the mining industry? Because you have a conservation background, right? Yeah, I studied um, resource economics and political science and uh, found myself in the Yukon in the early 1990s, um, doing some internship up there. And um, in the course of that, what was supposed to be a three-month posting, I stayed for five years. Oh, wow. And there was a lot of mining going on. And I got involved with the Yukon Conservation Society in a national initiative, which was called the White Horse Mining Initiative, which is a very intense, multi-sectoral, multi-stakeholder process, Mm -hmm. which lasted a couple of years and in which I learned more than I ever thought possible about mining and also got very involved in sort of the politics and policy of it. And that just led me down a path that I've never really got off of. So, um, but I find it really fascinating as essential materials, and we'll talk about that, as a resource sector with lots of problems that need solving. Absolutely. What a perfect intro. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about some of the sector's problems um, and, and a bit about the future. So specifically, the circular economy. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, virtually every minute of every day, right. we rely on minerals. And generally, they're obtained in one of two ways, either raw material extraction and processing, or recycling of materials with minerals that originally came from raw extraction. And most of us know that today, resource scarcity is becoming a really big concern on this planet, and that that linear way of accessing our raw materials just isn't sustainable. We don't have an infinite supply of natural resources on this planet. Can I ask you to share maybe a bit about how this topic has started to emerge in the mining industry specifically, and what some of the main drivers are? Sure. Um, Well, Initially, I think some in the mining industry saw this as a threat. Um, you know, it's the idea yeah. that eventually we'll just recycle our way and we won't need more mines. Mm-hmm. And I know that in some of the modeling that was done, maybe out of the European Union and others, there is a real focus on the minimization of natural resource use. Um, so that's mm-hmm. one aspect of of, of the, the thought. But the reality is that... Um, well, two things. One, one sort of the side, one the down. Part of the uh, the fact that we're going to be moving toward um, a low carbon future, which the energy transmission, storage, generation are all super metals intensive, materials intensive more broadly, but metals intensive particularly. Mm-hmm. So we've all seen the World Bank reports, uh, other things that have come out of the European Commission and others that 
pretty clearly uh, show that there's substantial increases in the use of metals to meet our low carbon future. Bit of an irony, but it's it's a fact. And um, that's sort of good news for the industry, I suppose. But uh, it also means that given that it's such a high impact um, and uh, intensity uh, industry, moving toward that low carbon energy system future could also move us beyond various natural thresholds in different ecosystems, communities, and others. We can't meet our low carbon future materials needs without fundamentally changing mm-hmm. how we're mining, or else this will be a train wreck in which the combination of conflict and, as you say, materials use will um, result in supply interruption and uh, and we won't be able to meet the needs for that infrastructure as it gets built out over the next years. Mm-hmm. And clearly, clearly renew, uh, recycled materials will play a significant role, but all the modeling I've seen says, you know, it's that enough. it's going to be decades before we'll get anywhere near mm-hmm. enough. And that still means increase. But the one other thing that's worth noting is that in some ways the metals are like the perfect circularity yes. material because they're infinitely recyclable mm-hmm. and incredibly mm-hmm. durable. Unlike you know, plastics, unlike wood, unlike a lot of other things where they just degrade right. over time, metals can stay in the system, can be circular if we use them properly. Yeah, which is a huge opportunity. So why don't we dig a it little is. deeper on what it actually means to be circular in the context of mining. So for me, I tend to see circular right. in kind of two buckets. So first I think about what does circularity look like at the mine site level? Um, like totally closed loop, zero waste mining, basically. And then second, I think about the role of the products that mining produces in a broader global circular economy. So maybe let's start with the first. Mm-hmm. At an asset level, what does it mean to you for mining mm-hmm. to be circular? Because ideas like reprocessing, repurposing, designing out waste, they're not necessarily new to the industry. But what kind of things do we have right. to do at a site level to really take it to the next level? Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of a, there's systems challenges and opportunities, there's supply chain, and that includes, we need to remember that mining isn't at the beginning of a supply chain, it's in the middle of supply chains. And so all the materials, all the energy that goes in and makes Mm -hmm. mining possible. Mining is uh, both a a user of and supplier of materials. And so I think it's, when we think about the mine site level, it's, it really is about, um, not the extraction of a raw material, but the user of many of those mm-hmm. raw materials mm-hmm. as well. And then, as you've said, the product level piece is is, is an entirely different uh, area. The, the closing of different supply loops and chains will create new opportunities for different kinds of mining and different kinds of demands for materials. So I think mm-hmm. it happens at those levels. So, I mean, there's the system optimization piece, which, you know, Mining companies are always looking to optimize energy use and uh, minimize waste and uh, mm-hmm. and find ways to um, to uh, change the way in which they're you know either paying for waste or creating liabilities or just you know paying money for somebody else to do that. And so we're seeing a lot with digitization and with new technologies that allow for that optimization in ways that uh, you know even five years ago, it's hard to imagine. And um, so within the mine supply, I think there's a lot of work, really fascinating example of this. And it's, it's something that I've learned over some recent work that I've done. Interestingly, is if we could look at the, uh, the uranium industry, 
because the nature of the radioactive elements they're working with, they have no latitude on waste. Everything has to be tracked. Everything has to be optimized and everything has to be done or else it, because there's no place to put it away and yeah. it has such a high cost. So interesting number of examples there where we've got these super high efficiency sites and really innovative ones that eliminate waste because they have to. We've got a lot to learn from folks like Cameco and others who've done some very, very interesting pieces. But I think that, that so at a systems level, I think there's a lot that can go on. But um, there's also um, things like uh, take-back programs, shared programs, leasing programs that are very different. And so when you get into the intensification mm -hmm. of product use, making sure everything is used as long and as hard as it as it can and there's ways in which things that were traditionally thrown away even chemical processes are now being used and reused in different ways by service providers who are bringing in their own ownership of something and uh so something that would have been traditionally thrown away is no longer and then also the um we're seeing companies like tech for example have millions and millions of dollars that they're they're making every year on their waste inventory of equipment and services and things mm -hmm. like that which would have had to either been landfilled or given away well it turns out there's a huge market for that and there's more and more of that happening in a very purposeful way um and then i think you sort of move up the the line into um into things like repurposing um, and that comes down to the mining the values from waste and what would have been characterized as waste before is now becoming more valuable this also ties in for the demand for a rare earth that is expanding and things that were really byproducts or just left in the ground are now looking at how we can extract those in different ways and often become very high value i mean uh, thallium is sort of a fascinating one because it was used to be a rat poison and was the most dangerous and low co low cost thing that you just had to try and get rid of. Well, now it's one of the highest value commodities coming out of trail, and it's used in high tech electronic applications. There's lots of those examples out there. Um, germanium is another one that is turning out to be from a minor side product into a, a major piece. So all of these are also ways of repurposing waste. Um, Things like carbon yeah. capture, of course, is going to be a big and valuable part of the future and things that have been lost. The Sudbury example around that is very good. And then work that I know you've done some work on is, um, is the repurposing of whole mine sites. Instead of the conventional reclamation model, if we thought more creatively in a, in a regional development model, a regional infrastructure model, what would be the best use of this other than neutralizing mm. their toxicity? There's other things that an industrial site mm -hmm. can be transferred into, which traditionally have been, you know, anecdotally or, or uh, on an ad hoc basis, I would say, but that things like all of those things need to be brought together into a more systems thinking that, that whose objective is zero waste and whose objective is carbon neutrality, if not carbon positive yes. operations. But, have to be thought about together to go beyond simply harm reduction to something that's much more mm -hmm. powerful mm -hmm. and valuable. Awesome. You had mentioned just to get the to get the terms in there. You'd mentioned uh, the hardwiring of regenerative right. principles and industrial ecology as terms that I was hoping that you would like pop in there. I mean, that was part of the um, sort of the vision. I think is what uh, what I, I think we can sort of touch on, especially the. Um, 
industrial ecology and what that could look like, um, and then the regenerative uh, piece as a core element of that is uh, sort of part of what I would see as sort of the the overall vision. Okay. And and these are all awesome, obviously, so but up. of course, circularity is a lot more than that. So maybe if we come back to that bigger question of how mm-hmm. mining's products fit into the broader circular economy, because thinking about that, for me, opens up the possibility to consider entirely new business models. There are significantly lower carbon footprints associated with non-virgin metal. Like I don't know if everyone even realizes that. So just imagine, for example, you can get the same amount of gold from recycling 41 cell phones as an entire ton of ore, like taking the average, say, one gram a ton. Mm -hmm. That's wild. And I've seen studies even showing that uh, raw extraction costs up to 13 times more than recycling e-waste when you do it right. How is mining supposed to compete with that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think in a few different ways. I mean, one is the fact, as we all know, that even if we did move to 100% recovery of all that stuff that's above the ground now, it wouldn't nearly be enough to to meet the demand. So whether we like it or not, mining is part of our future. And and I think that's just a reality. um, And I think that there are also ways, like the Elisis program, the aluminum-based smelting, the zero-carbon smelting programs that are out there now, and I understand there's one similar coming uh, around copper. So there are technology breakthroughs that we're going to see, I think, as these demands come in, and you know, just completely disruptive in terms of the, the potential there. So I wouldn't discount the fact that we could significantly reduce this the potential um, involvement of hydrogen and the acceleration of hydrogen energy coming through so that we're not using some of the systems that are so carbon intensive. But you're never going to get away from it completely. And um, But I think part of what we'll, we'll be looking at is solving for a variety of problems, um, not just the carbon issue, mm-hmm. but the waste issue and others. And so I think the mining value from waste approach, some of the extractions, the new technologies that are looking at remining tailings, the hole's already there. The The issues are already there. The infrastructure is already there. Yes. That's been spent. And so when you start looking at going in and using that existing system to, to extract more waste, if we've got those technologies and if there are proper regulatory and policy incentives in place, then I believe that we can be looking at extracting those things as essentially secondary. Those are recycled in a way um, and pulling it out. I had an interesting discussion with some Australian colleagues recently about things like, you know, Apple and others only looking at above. I was going to ask about that. Like, how do we do that? Right. I mean, we're seeing downstream users basically say, you know what, to meet our net zero commitments, we're only going to source recycled materials. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, again, they'll come into a big supply reality. And also, one of the things, the dialogues that we need to have is, um, you know, what problems are we solving for here? We need to be solving for multiple problems, and we need to be creating, and and some of them are are social, some of them are different ecological boundary problems, and and some of them are sort of Mm long-term legacy issues. You know, we have to work on these, um, as a core commitment, we have to work on regenerative systems, thinking about ecosystem regeneration. 
in, in a big way, which means that we've got to be using different kinds of technologies and we've got to prioritize that as part of a commitment throughout the supply chain. And that includes these sorts of optimizing existing sites, not just the recycling stuff and leaving the mining as though it was something we'd yeah. like to forget yeah. about. Yeah, because can't. it's still a part of our lives and it will continue yeah. to be for quite some time. That makes me think of something else I wanted to ask you about around this notion of commodities historically being effectively neutral substances. But in a circular economy, mm. what could it mean to for, for for a mined product to compete with a value-added commodity? For example, something where you don't have to worry about the carbon footprint or the human rights risk associated with your cobalt, copper, or aluminum if it came directly from a recycling loop instead of from virgin extraction. Do you see preferential market mm-hmm. and capital access or premiums maybe for circular and clean versus linear and dirty? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you saw recently, but uh, Robert Friedland, you know, the uh, the guru and bad boy of, of mining who's uh, made his billions around the world and, uh, um, and continues to do so, uh, recently spoke, um, I think it was at the Kerdillon Roundup, and he was unequivocal there will be many prices for copper. Mm-hmm. These, cop- these prices will be driven by ESG factors mm-hmm. because whether you're in Europe or Japan, you've got these global enterprises, uh, automotive, electronic, and, uh, and also the finance industry, which is coming on very strong on this area, That's are all saying we cannot have our businesses uh, stigmatized by right. access to these if you, relatively small volumes that were coming around conflict but that's mm-hmm. you know that now is going to go well beyond that i think it's it's very clear i mean premiums are complex and nobody wants to admit to paying them but um i think we're seeing now there be a variety of ways you could manifest that through preferential access to capital through access to different financial instruments through you know um, direct line supply chains to companies like the BMWs of the world and others. I see that happening now and I think it'll only accelerate. Yeah, it's funny. Um, Explicit circular principles aren't really an element we see much yet in ESG standards and frameworks, but I'm also guessing that this is something that's going to change pretty quickly. Uh, I know, for example, you're involved with the Initiative for Responsible Mining Insurance and they are actively thinking about what that looks like in terms of, you know, bringing this into a standard. What kinds of things do you think that the industry should be expecting from these ESG frameworks when it comes to the integration of circular principles in the pretty near future? Yeah, I think, I mean, there are importantly, um, the, the zero waste piece coming together with the low carbon piece, but also there, we need to remember that there's a very important part of, of, the, um, of circularity that's also a social equity piece yeah. that says it's it, it sort of if you if you draw the link back to the SDGs there's a lot of those things that have to be brought together the um, sustainable development goals of course and and I think what we're going to see is is um, an explicit um, series of metrics that are talking about the degree to which waste has been accounted for throughout supply chains, which will bring other partners in, mm. the degree to which aggressive um, greenhouse gas emissions are, are reduced, mm. and also the way in which um, the social legacy is there. And, you know, finally, um, to be the other part of the, um, the picture on, on circularity is what I said earlier around leaving, uh, making sure that you, you, you re- help to regenerate systems, ecosystems, and or ensure that they are 
viable at the end of the product. Mm -hmm. So with Irma, we're still looking at how, I think we have all those elements there, but we haven't brought them into um, an overarching view of circularity. And one of the things, one of the real beauties of circular economy, I think, and what attracted me to it is that it, one of its great values, I think, is that it's sort of a, a unifying theory in a way. It brings together these different silos where we've got, you know, sort of the energy efficiency side and we've got waste reduction side and we've got clean innovation and tend to have their own areas of expertise and they lose the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, they lose the, the ecological opportunity, the innovation are what happens when you bring all those things together. And I think that is one of the great values of using the circular economy lens is that it forces you into systems thinking which then start to generate different kinds of opportunities, different kinds of values Mm -hmm. when you're starting to bring those things together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. (laughs) So when we think about, you know, business models that can really prepare us for this future in the mining industry, uh, I'd love to explore how you see the industry participating most effectively in the materials loops of the future and, and staying relevant. Like, for example, what do you think about the idea of, re-identifying as a mineral solution company or uh, even metals, metal as a service, where you have a, a large integrated metal business model in which the company owns the whole loop where the metal keeps going out and coming right back in at the end of its product life. Because we've, mm-hmm. we've seen companies and industries outside of mines, uh, Michelin, Philips, Xerox, um, you know, Airbnb, Uber, these kinds of things, making this sort of model work. Do you see a way for mm-hmm. that to be feasible and realistic in mining? Absolutely. Um, I mean, we held a, a series as part of the World Circular Economy Forum in the fall uh, called uh, Mining for Circularity, in which the the um, Mark Kudafani, the CEO of Anglo-American, said, we started thinking of ourselves as, mm-hmm. as a mining company. Then we started moving towards these models of more mining efficiency and mining circularity. And now he's thinking much more. He used the term the materials. Material um, solutions company, I think, is, is his term. And the whole industry is talking about company. it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and so, and then just thinking, uh, you know, a fully integrated approach and there are ways in a very practical level, you could come back down to things like regional hubs where you've got these um, dedicated industrial ecology loops that are say Calgary or sorry, um, Sudbury or trail would be perfect where you've got these regional hubs where there's a high demand mm-hmm. for a variety of different kinds of yes. materials there is um, a lot of technical mm-hmm. expertise. There's also a variety of really challenging environmental issues, which has generated a bunch of really interesting thinking about solutions. So I think we'll see more of those sorts of things where, where companies are actively involved in the center of a, of a web of you know, suppliers, innovators, service providers, and that those become generative of ideas, examples, and practical uh, technologies and and uh, concepts that can be exported more more quickly. I think that's one of the things that we should be doing as Canadians is really doubling down on these industrial yeah. hubs and really fully exploiting. You know, you look at India or you look at Japan and some of the where they've gone with this industrial ecology is just mind boggling. And they're like yeah. years ahead of us, years ahead of us in the modeling that they're doing. And we could do a lot more in that area. 
But then if you also look ahead, um, there's been some interesting work done by the International Resource Panel on the concept of materials leasing. Yeah. And so, you know, theoretically, um, you could produce X amount of copper and take responsibility for it throughout its life cycle, come back in and refine it and sell it again. Now, you don't have to follow through blockchain every molecule by molecule. There's things like mass balance work that have been applied in, say, pulp and paper, where you know a volume comes out that has these characteristics mm -hmm. to it. And in smelters and in others, it may make a lot more sense for, for, say, a company in Japan to use a volume that's come through there, whereas um, a similar characterized set of materials might be available in, in mm -hmm. North America. You would have a commitment to a level of value that you'd process in a different way, and you get credit for it as long as you kept yes. it coming back. So, you know, for those who say, well, you, you can't follow my copper around the world and bring it back, I don't think we need mm -hmm. to be literal around it. There are different systems that have been used for different industries that um, allow us to value mm -hmm. those materials and keep them in cycle according to a more efficient sort of regional models. Um, I, th yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, one thing that really interests me is this trend that I've noticed in both automotive and, and tech industries where looks like they're not even waiting around for us to get on board. Tesla, Audi, oh, wow. BMW, Renault, Apple, like the list goes on and on. These guys are all creating their own loops, either fully in-house or through other partnerships, but they're not using mining companies. <laughs> No, not as um, not yet. Um, I think again we'll we'll be looking at as we get be, become more ambitious about the percentage of of materials that are truly yeah. you know circular. Then we're that you know you're going to have to reach out and deal with the mining sector yeah. more directly. And I think as the mining sector becomes more interested and aware of the potential value of these kinds of mm -hmm. relationships, then I think we'll see much more. Um, of those kinds of collaboration, but you're absolutely right. There is, I've talked directly with with Tesla around the future of their battery uh, production and and loops, um, and uh, and with BMW and others who are very aggressive about where they're going. And there's just no way exactly. they're turning back. And interestingly, bring a a COVID reference into this. The uh, this has only got stronger under the the experience of, yeah. of COVID. Um, and I, we've talked explicitly with a number of companies who have said, oh yeah, we're just doubling down. This has just proved the vulnerability, proved the need for these values. And this is just actually, if anything, accelerated the uptake of these kind of values into different mm -hmm. kinds of business mm -hmm. models. Oh, there's so. no doubt. COVID has raised awareness so incredibly around, around supply chains, around sourcing risks, around resource scarcity around environmental impact. Like, I, I, I get it. I get it that there's no way they're turning back now that they're on that path. Well, and also on that thought, we've got this sort of build back yeah. better movement. Um, and it's sort of globally where we're seeing the role of the public sector um, and governments completely rethinking how they're going to spend tax dollars, where they're going to set investments, how they're going to use the disruption to really mm -hmm. retool. And we need that level of public sector engagement and ambition if we're going to achieve this. So that just sort of uh, is further evidence of, uh, of the, the Yeah, and that's an important point to highlight, right? Uh, it, it speaks back to, you mentioned earlier around the importance of systems thinking, right? We do need all these different actors mm -hmm. to be involved to move this thing forward. This is not one person's problem. 
it's not one person or one company that's yeah. going to find the solution either. Yeah, and I think that that and that also speaks to a question we've been doing some more thinking on in terms of sort of change theory. Um, and this happened to a degree in the electronics industry where you can gain competitive advantage as an individual company. And, you, you, you know, the will, there's, there's the advancements that are a number of the big players are making, are, they're doing it for competitive advantage and for yeah. their shareholders, right? But there's a lot of work to be done in the pre-competitive mm -hmm. space. And there's a lot of work that can affect policy, it can affect mm -hmm. technology, it can affect markets. Um, and in the electronics sector, oh, you know, five to 10 years ago, at least, we saw a lot of that, um, where you know, the Intels and the Apples and the Microsofts were in the room trying to figure out what, what do we need to compete on or what do we need to do this? We even mm -hmm. saw this in the oil sands where um, Cosia came through and said, we can't compete on this, some of this stuff. We have to share knowledge, share technologies, open source on this stuff so that everybody yeah. moves ahead. It won't happen across the board, but I think there is a really important pre-competitive space that needs to be further developed. And that's an area I'm personally really interested in, in yeah. working. <laughs> it's yeah. a very hard challenge for our industry, I think, too. It's come up in a, in a number of the episodes on this series. Um, maybe let's, while we're on that, let's yeah. dig into it a bit more. What what it, what do you think around the notion of circularity? What do you think sits within the pre-competitive and what can sit within the competitive if you were giving advice to the industry? Yeah, well, certainly in the pre-competitive space, um, they're, they're, you know, policy and regulation, really important. Whether it's trade, like there's huge issues on waste definitions in trade, which are a big impediment to rethinking how we're using these things. That's a tricky area. There's a lot of reasons that there's a lot of the waste policies and trade policies are there, but they need to be rethought. They're outdated and they're they're an impediment. So that would be one example. There are areas where I think seeing a surging ahead of higher bar commitment um, across a number of companies so that they can send a signal to markets that they're ready to go and that this is the new normal. I think there are um, sending strong signals of, of commitment mm -hmm. and capacity. Along with that, I think there's also, um, you know, broader needs for certain kinds of infrastructure that can feed regionally, nationally, internationally that are, are, are common in some ways. And then with that, as we've said, there's standards that um, we need to see more consistently applied across regions, across nations, okay, that doesn't disadvantage certain you know, regions unintentionally and block certain areas out of those uh, ability to, to, uh, to compete. Um, so I think, you know, those are sort of things which we've seen examples of in other, other areas that, um, other industries, but, um, within, within particular companies, of course, um, you know, Anglo has got some really interesting examples as I know Rio Tinto does and, um, BHP, they're all in a moving head, Arcelor as well, where they've got particular areas where they're 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 surging forward yeah. um on technological breakthroughs at least this is a really interesting example the aluminum smelting piece and that's going to be huge mm. for them they they can own it they know those sorts of markets and i think we'll see a lot of that happening um and then the individual kind of partnerships that'll happen with different companies and, and their supply chains to channel 
a particular set of values through to a company that is seeking like an automotive company, for example. Um, you know, these, there are examples in the jewelry industry where you've got miners of diamonds, for example, that have exclusive relationships with certain um, retailers and others. I could foresee cultivating expertise on a regional and commodity mm -hmm. basis that will build new kinds of exclusive and mutually beneficial mm -hmm, partnerships. Mm -hmm. It makes me think, what kind of, um, I guess, more general market incentives are you seeing that are that are pushing mining in this direction? For example, I, I think that that sort of opportunity to have uh, those sorts of partnerships, very interesting. Are you seeing other market incentives that are, yeah, pushing the industry in this direction? Um, well, I mean, part of it is, uh, and I just had a conversation with a, with a, one of the world's largest finance companies and they were just talking about how how the, the sort of association with the need to get tailings more fully underway and tailing safety more advanced in a more uniform way is is affecting a lot of the thinking around the investment community and not only just on you know what's going to get factored in and the cost of the capital associated with it but also access to things like um different financial instruments like green bonds and others that could become available to companies who are willing to invest in certain kinds of technologies and would be not available to companies who are not. And where, you know, there might be there, and we've heard different, uh, different uh, investment houses talk about this or finance houses talk about these sorts of things where you've got access to different kinds of capital mm -hmm. and in different ways to solve different kinds of problems. So I think that's there. I mean, I also think we shouldn't underestimate the, um, uh, and I've heard this from many companies, just your ability to retain or to hire and retain high quality staff <laughs> personnel is going to be largely and increasingly dependent on your ability to be seen to yes. perform in this. Some of the electronic companies that I know would just say, that's our number one audience. It's an internal audience. If we don't have these things in place, we will not yes. get the best and brightest <laughs> and our competition will. And I think, you know, I know that mining, one of the big issues is around yeah. labor force. Oh, we've uh, had a talent crisis already, even before and all this stuff becoming super important to the next generation. We have a ton to learn from the tech industry in particular. Yeah. How do the big companies bring in the best talent. It's it's by paying attention to what the next generation that's going to be your leaders of tomorrow want to see. And that's around purpose. That's around sustainability performance. Yeah. And I remember yeah. uh, Microsoft was probably the first big one in the headlines where um, they did some incredible stuff around their energy. And the article was very clear. We did this following internal pressure from our workforce, period. Yeah. And you look at the universities and, um, you know, we do some talks in different different uh, engineering schools and the mining industry or the mining engineering folks are always in high competition with the others. And so how can we talk about these values in a mm -hmm. different way that brings these, these, you know, tons of engineering students that are running through and get them reinterested in us? And the more we do that, you know, the better our, com our, our companies will be. The, the faster we will be able to accelerate. So there's, I think there's a, a range there. Um, you know, the cost of community conflict is is immense. And um, Daniel Frank and uh, um, has done a piece that talks about you know, sort of quantifying net present value loss from things that are essentially related to waste, pollution, and social disruption. And it's in the order of, uh, you know, 
uh, I think it was about ten million dollars a week. If I yeah, if I'm yeah, not it can be even higher than that in, for the large sites. And, um, yeah, it's wild. I use it a lot in my training and my pitches. Yeah. It's like if you are questioning how much money to spend on your ESG initiatives, just look at the real cost of conflict. There's plenty of data in this industry. It'll it'll cost you millions a yeah. day in some yeah. cases. So, yeah. And the, and, you know, I've talked to some of the people involved with Irma and they said, that's their number one yeah. driver. It's, it's really is there. And I think the circularity thing is again, a, a systems approach, which the good news is it's not just another hair shirt <laughs> you wear. It's actually focused on economic value as well as social and yes. ecological value. It's, it's designed to generate more value throughout the supply chain. So this is a way of rethinking that to 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 maximize value while solving mm -hmm. for these other kind of liabilities and costs yeah. so um when we start thinking more holistically about that from an economic point of view i think we'll we'll get a whole, access to a whole different set of mm -hmm. solutions mm -hmm. you know you advocate for total transformation right not just like incremental harm reduction uh, i want to i want to ask you what is your ultimate vision for circular mining or or for a circular mine site what does that look like for you Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the the rationale for that idea of transformation um, is that we can't sort of incrementally get ourselves out of this crisis. It's got to, we know that we can slow down, we know we can do less, but unless we really, really think, rethink our approach to the economic values, then, um, and how they relate to the real external costs of doing business, then yeah. we will fail. And, and that can't happen. And so, but then the upside of it is also that, that, you know, the studies I've seen is that small level investments get to small level returns. The, the deeper you go into the systems, the more you completely you commit to them, the higher the value return is on these things. And then the more they become possible because you're creating these, these uh, demand loops that come back at you as well. And I think we're seeing that starting to happen now. And that's, that's pretty exciting. But I think, yeah, coming back to that question, I mean, it'll play out in different ways because, you know, depending on the commodity, you know, you, you might be a low value, high volume mm -hmm. commodity, uh, or it might be a high value, low volume. And so those mindsets will look differently. Right. And it's also like in Canada, whether you're doing remotely in, in the far north or whether you're in one of these great industrial hubs like Sudbury or, or Trail, there will be different scenarios that you will be able to play out by the virtue of the support, the infrastructure, the markets, and the technology that you're dealing with. So there's no sort of one vision, but, you know, I, I see no reason why we shouldn't have carbon positive sites, right? Um, that, that we should be using these industrial sites as generators of, mm. of that, um, that sort of different form of, of energy. Um, you know, I certainly see the idea of the the mine site at the center of supply chains, not at the beginning of them, and seeing that as that. And, you know, the good news is, you know, it's not always people asking for the mine site. The mine site can be asking of others and see themselves as the center of a process. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a fundamental view. Your responsibilities go up and down the supply chain and need to be, and both create potential value efficiencies and and, um, and and innovations. And then, yeah, I think that we're going to see people in different companies who are 
benefiting from these complete closed mm-hmm. loops. And we will start to see, you know, just as some of the, the energy companies are now, you know, seeing themselves as energy companies, not yes. oil companies. And they realize that there's huge transitions that can, um, if they become part of, you know, it won't be for all companies. Again, you're going to see a range of actors, but some super high efficiency, small operations that are, um, you know, actively sort of financed and partnering on rare earths will be you know, one component of it. Mm-hmm. So you've got um, a zero footprint, small scale mine, and then you will have these fully integrated companies that are working directly with the Teslas and, and others to, uh, to ensure that, that everybody's doing sort of their area of expertise to the absolute optimum. So I think there'll be, it'll be an interesting constellation of challenges and, and technologies, but I would like to see us as Canadians investing heavily in the, in um, that range and where we've got things like these hubs that come back to the you know, sort of the industrial ecology hubs in these areas. Yeah. These can be huge value global labs for generating these solutions and exporting those, those solutions and, and accelerating them around, around, around the globe. Mm-hmm. So we've got a lot of expertise. We've got some beautiful examples where we could really make that in and of itself a priority. And some of this work is underway, but the government should be involved. Supply chain should be, citizens should be involved in this because yes. everybody's going to benefit. Yes, yes, absolutely. So to date, who do you think is like most on their way to really getting there? Who's making meaningful steps that the rest of the industry could be looking to, to join forces with or to imitate or at the very least to learn from? Mm-hmm. You mentioned a few great right. examples already. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting because... I'm aware of a number of things that are under a way that are not made public yet for a variety of reasons that, um, you know, they're either not sure if it's hundred percent ready or, you know, there might be some elements. And so I think we're seeing tip of the iceberg might be a little bit strong, but I think there's a lot going on under the surface right now that is about to be made public. You know, there are, I mean, Anglo-American has been, has chosen to be mm-hmm. leaders. They've chosen mm-hmm. to be very public about a lot of what they're doing yeah. because, you know, partly it's their brand, partly it's just their culture, right? But I know that Rio Tinto is very, um, very ambitious in this space and has a lot of work going on. I mentioned the smelting side of it, but there's a lot more that is going on, and I'm, I'm hoping that they will be uh, talking more about that in the future. I mean, uh, BHP, another one, um, tech is been working on a circularity strategy for some time and and um i expect to see that out more explicitly shortly and then arcelor and arcelor is a kind of a fascinating yeah, like example 30 percent of their steel is already steel, from scrap for example like they're way ahead of the game yeah and they have you're talking about yeah. a fully integrated supply chain right from the iron ore to the coal to, well, they're not mining coal, I don't think themselves, but the iron ore is there. And on the one hand, basically catalyze responsible mm. steel to look at full supply chain stuff, but they're in that all the way through. There have been a very, very creative and uh, ambitious member of the mm-hmm. IRMA organization for some time. And I think they, the other reason that Arcelor is so important is just that steel is like the vast, vast, vast majority of materials on the planet of all the metals go into steel mm-hmm. production just by, as, as you know. So we've got to solve for steel 
And um, yeah, I know. I think there's a great thing to be doing on steel, uh, to be focusing on steel, a lot of reasons to do it. Of course, it brings in a lot of other metals as well. But um, in Canada, there's a great opportunity to double down on that. And there's there's clearly the markets are, are evolving fast mm -hmm. on that. So yeah, there's, there's um, but I, I'm hoping um, another example, just to I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Agnico Eagle, I um, who are working on. <laughs> I was like, is yeah, he going to talk yeah, about Agnico? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, they did a small case study for us for the World Circular Economy Forum, but I really like the way they're thinking from the, uh, you know, the mine site uh, efficiencies through to the regeneration of natural mm -hmm. systems. You have to have mine sites in the right places in order to take advantage of some of these things. But if you do have them, you know, like in Quebec and these other things, then you have the ability and arguably the responsibility to really fully mm -hmm. implement these sorts of strategies. And I know that's that's uh, part of their thinking. They're doing a lot of interesting things, but uh, but the circularity stuff, I was really pleasantly surprised to see just how far they are, both conceptually and in a practical level. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to seeing some of the details merge in the coming months, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to, there's a bit, going to be, from what I can see, there's going to be a bit of a torrent around this area so. in the next couple of mm -hmm. years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And what about other industries? So, you know, when it comes to sustainability and innovation, we know that mining lags a fair bit. Uh, what are other industries that you think we could learn something from? Well, I mean, there are different elements of the process of circularity that um, maybe could be selectively chosen from yeah. others because I don't think any one industry has really surged forward no. in any mass way but I mean forestry certainly is is uh, um, you know you look at some of the Scandinavian forest companies in particular who've thought really deeply on on the energy side on on the natural system side and on the product side and done incredible amount of innovation on on uh, value capture, repurposing, and up-purposing. Yes. So I think there's there's good lessons to be learned in in the forest sector, and a lot of again, a lot of the innovation that's going on is below the surface. It's available, but it's uh, it's not something we talk about or frame in circular ways. But there's some a lot of really interesting system innovation, product innovation that's happened there that I think we could mm -hmm. learn from. But I mentioned you know even like in the chemical industry and the manufacturing industries. In Japan and in India and others, um, you know, when I first started becoming aware of these issues around circularity you know, several years ago, what was already happening within those kind of industrial ecology subsystems nationally was just mind-boggling, and and the kinds of service versus product kind of offerings on on chemicals, for example, mm. on different kinds of equipment and others was just things that I just could only fantasize about. So there's a lot of good examples, industrial systems through to the others. I mean, food is catching up quickly. I don't know. I mean, the, the interesting thing about food is that it's got such a, a human and, and retailer side to it, different than a lot of the, the mining side, but, um, yeah. but it's still looking at that. But I would look at forestry and some of the um, industrial and manufacturing operations that are already, as you said, the automotive industry is just moving at light speed on this and they're mm -hmm. fully committed. You know, they're doubling down on all of their things. So mm -hmm. we should be thinking about, 
you know, how they're using metals, how we could help them use metals better, how some of the design they're doing with alloys and other things could be done in a way that would be more complementary to the extraction and smelting systems that we have here. Those are all, you know, those kinds of design questions. It's reasonable to involve the metals companies in them more actively so that we could really get the most out of these and then start to design sort of the mines and the smelters of the future to meet those needs in, in, a, in a better way. So when, um, when we're looking at, at potential areas where we can learn lessons from other others, I was made aware of these um, sort of largely manufacturing, um, chemical processing, other, other um, large-scale initiatives in Japan and in India, for example, where they'd taken an industrial ecology approach and deliberately brought together um, and, and connected through um, a series of both information, service supply, and, and different forms of innovation that allowed them to run some what previously were very hazardous and wasteful kinds of both manufacturing and processing dealing with, with hazardous chemicals and a variety of other things into closed loop systems that were able to generate, well, first stop generating waste and harm and also significantly increase the value of both jobs and you know, services and products that were that became byproducts of these kinds of hubs. So I think there's, there's examples out there where high degrees of circularity have been brought in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's great. So much opportunity. So speaking yeah. speaking of opportunity, uh, when you look inside the industry, what do you think are some of our greatest opportunities and strengths that we can leverage in this journey? Well, you know, I, I, you and I have talked about this before, but one of the things that I find really interesting as I've worked in, in and around the industry for almost 30 years now is that, um, you know, Although people like to say, and it's true, that, that there's a lot of inertia in the industry, it doesn't move quickly. And partly mm-hmm. that's because these are long-term mine sites that last for a long time and there's only so much you can do in a quick day. But on the other hand, I found it really heartening and really fascinating that, that the industry has this ability to problem solve in, in ways that is, you know, without precedent. You know, finding these needles in these geological haystacks and literally moving mountains and there aren't a lot of serious mistakes made in that way, but problem solving, the industry does better and they're forced to innovate in really crazy mm. ways. So I, I'm always, you know, sometimes reminding my industry colleagues to say, uh, you know, what differentiates you is that you, you're, you, you're problem solvers under impossible circumstances. So when I, and I encourage my NGO friends to say, just put it in the frame of a problem that can be solved and they'll solve it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and when we've seen this happen time and time again, if you just put it in the frame of a complaint, then it's just another thing that has to be on, on the thing. So I think those sorts of things are, are very important. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, the growing interest in, in supply chain and the growing involvement in supply chains is, you know, that kind of literacy that's coming in now as the as forced in, I think that's an area that really needs a lot of work to develop those sort of partnerships, develop that kind of um, literacy around those those issues. Certainly, is um, an area that that uh, will distinguish leading companies from yes. from others. And those who try and stay with their eyes down on the site are going to be uh, 
can be challenged. Mm -hmm. And we've also, you know, talked about the, the embracing of digitization yes. and um, the ability to move forward in um, with different kinds of equipment, different kinds of analytics um, that will really help. And industry has made a lot of progress on that recently, but let's apply it in this direction. So, I mean, those are some of the things that mm -hmm. just sort of come to mind, but um, uh, yeah. I know you want to say something that. about uh, the next generation of leadership as well, if you want. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's the other other aspect is that uh, we are, as we talked about earlier, the, the, there is a lot of excitement in this potential and the, the repositioning of mining in, uh, in, as a contributor to global solutions as opposed to just the, you know, the provider of, of, of mm -hmm. raw materials. And I think that is a, a really exciting prospect that will dry, draw more in to the uh, thing. There's going to be changing of the kinds of boards of directors we have the kinds of management and leadership we have uh, and and also kind of the relationship with technology is going to change a lot about how mine sites play out on the ground and um, those are going to be all sort of challenges that are going to require a new a new kind of thinking so I think uh, that evolution will happen pretty pretty fast and the more the market and you know, the investment world rewards that the faster that that transition will will occur um, but you know, I was I was talking with um, company a few years ago, and I was asked uh, to address the board of directors on coming challenges and uh, what's the next issue we're going to have to worry about. And I thought long and hard about it, and the answer I came to was sort of surprised me as well. And I said it was mm -hmm. governance. Governance is is a challenge because you have to be willing to share risk. You have to be willing to listen in very different ways. You have to be different, willing to think about competencies, uh, core competencies within a company in different ways. And um, you know, the way you solve problems has to involve internal and external audiences in ways that it mm -hmm. never did before. The way you cooperate with policy and, and regulatory yes. environments means different kinds of problem solving, different kinds of things, which, which require uh, a more open governance model and and that comes back to these ideas of, mm -hmm. of partnerships that need to be rethought to solve the kind of problems we're talking about. These aren't engineering yes. problems. We know that. These yes. are much more than that. Well, they are engineering problems in some cases, but it's much, mm -hmm. much, much more than that if we're going to take advantage of the of the potential values that are, I believe, on or Absolutely. on, uh, on offer. And requiring soft skills, I think, too, that we haven't historically prized and, and perhaps haven't. Uh, no. cultivated as much as we ought to have in order to be to be ready for all these challenges and opportunities that we are now facing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, that's absolutely true. And we're seeing this, you know, one of the most obvious areas around Indigenous yeah. relations and how we're thinking about what's your role in a, in a community and what's your understanding of mm -hmm. land and how do you how do you think of risk? How do you think of value? But some really great pro, uh, progress that's been made um, in different parts of the country around that. Yes. So that kind of a rethink, which again, you know, 15 years ago, with a few exceptions, was not possible. Now it's normal. So I, I expect to see that kind of shift in thinking 
starting to be applied more broadly to the value chains that we're talking about mm-hmm. around circular mm-hmm. economy. Absolutely. So, Alan, sure. you're doing yeah. some really interesting stuff. And I'm wondering for you know folks in the audience who might be a bit younger and interested in what you're talking about, what would your advice be to someone who might be interested in positioning their career paths at a similar nexus to yours? Uh, yeah, that's a good challenge because um, it's been a rather circuitous route for me. Um, but uh, but I think, you know, first and foremost, do what you're passionate about. You'll be better at it. You'll be motivated by it. You'll be excellent at it. So don't get a job, get a passion. I think that is that is essential. And we're seeing that in recruiters and things like that. A, a simple set of skills is not good enough. A passion is essential. So follow the thing that you that really turns your crank. The other thing I think that's really important is that um, in this space, those who have the value of being able to listen carefully across sectors, across um, cultures, um, and even in between in companies. I mean, look for that space that brings things together. Ask yourself the question, what problems are we solving for here? Yeah, there's a, a big convening role and you, know, you have to either be willing to work with conveners or be a convener yourself, or at least that's an area of huge growth. But I, you know, I, I start pretty much every meeting and every project by asking myself, what problems are we solving for? Because those mm. problems are diverse. People bring diverse perspectives in. And if you start with that mindset of what problems we're solving for, then you'll start to think differently about how you go about this and how you create innovations and never assume you know that the problem you think you're solving for is the one that that really needs to be pursued. So it's a bit of a mindset thing. And I think that's as important as anything else. I mean, I, I don't have any significant academic degrees, so it's not expertise uh, from an academic nature that brings me here. It's experience. Spent five years up north, you know, working in, in, you know, challenging situations up there, just keep throwing myself into new challenges. And that's all I could advise is just take on new challenges, be passionate about them, and listen really, really carefully to uh, what people are really trying to solve for, because that assumption is one of the things I see constantly missed, and it's a problem. Do you really understand the problem? That's right. And, and often the job that you get is not the job you're really applying for. That's happening two or three things down the way. So again, be prepared to be surprised, yeah. you know, and, uh, and keep your eyes open. I like that. So. so Alan, when you think about the future of mining and its role in the circular economy, what are you most excited about and what are you afraid of? Well, I'm a f- the thing that, that worries me is that people will stick to an incremental efficiency gains uh, view and not embrace a more full systems mm-hmm. approach um, and that will squander valuable time on tweaking a few things and bragging a lot about it as opposed to getting down to disrupting a lot of the supply chains and being actively challenging others who are nice. challenging the industry. You know, it's going to be it's going to be a very different set of relationships. And, you know, it's certainly it's started and there, there's good examples out there. But I think there's a lot of folks who are still kind of hoping this thing passes and we can get back to mining. <laughs> so, so I think um, the idea of incrementalism and a focus simply on efficiency would be uh, a real loss. And I believe companies who do that will, will, um, will yes. suffer, uh, you know, lost opportunities. But in terms of excitement, well, 
it is really, really interesting to watch. If, if you look at the, um, the low carbon or the, the clean energy future and the embracing of that supply in a way that links the imperative for clean energy with the imperative for responsible mining. And then that brings with it a lot of new allies. It brings with it a lot of new imperatives and markets. Mm -hmm. And, and in the past, you know, whether it's, you know, jewelry or, you know, luxury automobiles or other things, you know, the, the imperative for change and the embracing of, of reforms to be part of new markets has not been, you know, it's been a bit boutique yeah. in a way, you know, and that's a nice thing to do if you're working with and those companies, tough. but really the rest of us are just, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas this, this is such a game changer. So I think that the ability for leadership to embrace the, um, the contribution they need to make, knowing that they're going to have to be part mm -hmm. of this future, knowing that that future has to be integrated for low carbon and zero waste in order to meet the critical supply chain. So I just think that, political moment where there's a fundamental rethink mm -hmm. and more active partnership as opposed to sort of a, a defensive approach, which I've seen in the past a fair bit. That's what I'm looking forward to the most. And I, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to a number of people in industry who see that and, and who are quite willing to embrace it. But um, there's a lot more sort of cultural work to be mm -hmm. done to, to go beyond that uh, more, more broadly. Uh, but I, I do think that it's a very critical moment and the companies that, that embrace that moment are and lead the way are going to see considerable value and they will draw investment, they will draw market, they will draw talent and and watching that process unfold is going to be really Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that yeah. that's a lovely yeah. answer and it flows so much into my next question, which is, you know, the show is called Prospecting Purpose. Uh, I want to ask you what purpose mm -hmm. means to you for this industry, um, particularly with a, with a lens to circularity. What is our role in tackling humanity's grand challenges and really shaping a more sustainable future? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, purpose more broadly is sort of like meaningful activity taken on with deliberate strategy to achieve uh, multiple values, social, ecological, mm -hmm. and economic. So, so you really want to optimize those, but it has to be, you know, meaningful at those levels and, and deliberate and thorough in its execution. And I think, um, so companies that do that will you know, have this high value efficiency approach and, um, and will gain benefits both internally and externally. Um, we started off in the, in, in, in the construction industry and others around energy efficiency, and we thought we would be ambitious. We were so surprised by how much greater the values were once mm -hmm. we started going in. And we tripped over new innovations and things that, that you know, they, they were so effective that we could only have dreamt of them before. We wouldn't have talked about them out loud. So we just said, be prepared to be surprised around this stuff because the more you invest in it, the greater the value will happen, the more it will unlock. And mm -hmm. I think, not that there's not going to be a lot of challenges and costs along the way, but I think that, that view of embracing purpose um, will yield um, benefits and uh, outcomes that are well beyond what we can uh, anticipate now. And uh, that's the exciting part of it. And there's, there's examples out there. So I think with this industry, whether it's solving the energy problems that need to happen internally or becoming you know, much more effective um, deliverers of this value, whether it's in Africa 
or in Europe. Um, I think that there's a great ways in which the, the, you know, the durable nature of the products, the kind of innovations we can bring will be able to realize an incredible amount of value at the social and economic level. So all that and I think the, the, you know, at the heart of the industry being able to be recognized as an essential part of you know, the sustainable future is something that everybody wants to hear, but right now is not yet part of the, the narrative, at least not more broadly. And I think that is the, the potential um, that will bring with it a lot of other, other um, uh, attractors and, and, and both, both economic and, uh, and, uh, and social values to it. Perfect. So. Well, that's all for today's episode. This is Liz Friel on Prospecting Purpose. Thank you for joining us. And thank you so much, Alan, also for being with us today. Thanks, Liz. It's been a great conversation and you've, you've stimulated a lot of thinking for me and taking me in some new directions too. If you're looking to connect with Alan or learn more about his work, you can reach him via LinkedIn or the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This episode is powered by Simpact, an ESG think tank and sustainability advisory firm on a mission to shape a more sustainable, socially just and brighter future for all. Visit us at sympact.ca to learn more. What's your purpose?